Um, my name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute, and it's my honor to introduce our Senator, uh, our Speaker tonight, at least partly because I'm a native of Kentucky. Um, <laughs> yes, there are three people, yeah. I published some evidence recently. <clears throat> I published some evidence recently that Kentucky may be the country's least libertarian state. So when Rand Paul started running for the Senate in Kentucky, and occasionally he would say something that my colleagues would come in and grumble about in my office, I would say, look, he's running in the least libertarian state in the country. What do you expect? Um, in any case... He was not scared off either by the populist tradition in Kentucky or by Kentucky's Republican establishment headed by our distinguished senior senator and Senate minority leader. He took on Mitch McConnell's hand-picked Republican candidate in a primary. Nobody thought he had any more chance than, say, arguing that the uh, Obamacare law violated the Constitution. They laughed the same way. But after three or four months of campaigning, they held an election and they called it a landslide. <laughs> and a couple of months after that, I was on the McLaughlin Group in the summer, and at the end of the McLaughlin Show, they, they ask you for a prediction. My prediction was, in Kentucky, the Democrats are calling Rand Paul an extremist, Rand Paul is calling his opponent a Democrat. In the end, the voters will be more afraid of the Democrats. Uh, and that was, in fact, true. And there was another Rand slide. Ron Paul is one of the fathers of the Tea Party, which maybe makes Rand Paul a son of the Tea Party. And that's why his first book, after he got to Washington, was called The Tea Party Goes to Washington. He's got a new one coming out in six weeks called Government Bullies, How Everyday Americans Are Being Harassed, Abused, and Imprisoned by the Feds. Since getting to the Senate, about 18 months now, Rand Paul has lived up to everything his supporters hoped. He's introduced a bill to actually balance the federal budget. He's spoken out for a constitutional foreign policy. He's demanded actual debate on the Patriot Act. He managed to kill a particularly bad piece of indefinite detainment legislation just by demanding that the Senate vote on it. They wanted to pass it by voice vote. When he insisted that they vote, they couldn't find 51 senators to vote for a piece of legislation like that. And he's fought government bullies from the EPA to the TSA, both on the Senate floor and actually at the TSA. <laughs> Checkpoint. And I know that some libertarians have grumbled about his endorsement of Mitt Romney or the occasional bad joke in Iowa. But I will tell you, I live here in Washington. I watch Congress. Nobody else in the Senate has a record even close to his. And now I may even have to revise my view of Kentucky politics. Because Rand Paul endorsed a candidate in a congressional primary this year who was running against a candidate who had all the other big endorsements in the state. 
And a, this candidate went around saying, we don't need any more socialist, communists, or libertarians in the Republican Party. <laughs> and on election day, Thomas Massey was selected to join Rand Paul in the Kentucky Freedom Caucus next January. Please welcome the junior senator from the Commonwealth of Kentucky, the first but soon not the only member of the liberty movement representing Kentucky in Congress, and the first senator from the Tea Party, Rand Paul. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I always enjoy coming to anything that Cato is doing. Cato has been a, a marvelous, uh, really, you know, group for liberty up here for many years now. And I can remember even when I was back in high school, back when David was young, I think, at the time, and just beginning at Cato. But that you would read in the Wall Street Journal, and they would quote the libertarian think tank, Cato. And all of a sudden, there was a voice for something slightly different, or maybe radically different, than what we were getting from the other think tanks. And to survive as a think tank for all of these years, and to thrive, and to have all the scholars, I think we all should be very glad that Cato is here. Now, my wife tells me that when I get ready to say something, I should count to ten first and think about it before I say it. So. <laughs> When the Supreme Court came out with their decision on Obamacare, I was kind of mad and I forgot to count to ten. And so uh, I said, or at least someone on my staff said for me, I believe, said, just because a couple of guys up at the Supreme Court say it's unconstitutional doesn't make it so. And so I got all this grief from the, the left wing. The blogs were saying, he doesn't believe in Marbury. He doesn't believe in judicial review. He doesn't think the Supreme Court decision is valid. It really was a little more simple than that. I was just mad, and I still think it's unconstitutional. But I don't disagree with the validity of the Supreme Court. I just still think it's unconstitutional. My question would be, if Justice Scalia were here and you ask him, do you still think it's unconstitutional, or do you think he's changed his mind? No, he lost, but I think he would still argue that it's unconstitutional. If you ask Justice Thomas, is it unconstitutional, I think they'd still tell you. You know, I think if James Madison were here and you ask him, do you think it's unconstitutional? I think he'd say yes, too. This debate is not a new one, and it's not over. I mean, this debate is really, it's much bigger than health care. This debate is something that is about whether we're a republic or whether we're a democracy, whether we're going to be ruled by the mob or ruled by a majority, or whether we're going to be ruled by laws that restrain what your government can do. Madison and Hamilton had this debate. And it's sort of, you know, we won for quite a while, but we've been losing now for about 80 years. So there's a lot of bad precedent to overturn. Some of it, I think, when Roberts ruled the way he did, he may believe in his mind that he's a conservative because he's for judicial restraint. I've always sort of hated the terms judicial restraint and judicial activism. It ought to be you're for originalism or you're for a constitution that morphs into whatever the majority says it is. And if you're for originalism and we've gone towards that the Constitution can mean anything, then you've got to be somewhat active to go back towards being an originalist and towards an original interpretation. If we've had bad Supreme Court decisions for 70 years, maybe you've got to overturn some precedents to go in the right direction. So I think that's really part of the fundamental flaw, if I had to guess, with Justice Roberts. 
But as we were reading through this, and I was trying to explain my comment about just a few guys up there don't get to make the decision, I read through a case back in the 30s. In 1936, there's a U.S. versus Butler case. And the irony of it is the decision is written by another Justice Roberts, a Justice Owen Roberts. And in that decision, he strikes down a tax as being coercive, as being in the purview of the states and a power not granted to the federal government, and he strikes it down as unconstitutional. And I said, to me, it sounds like a Obamacare case, you know, all over again. I said, the more I read of the first Justice Roberts, the more I think I like the first one better than the second one. <laughs> That's, that's when my wife uh, said again, you need to count to 10 before you speak. But um, George Will, I think, had it right when he wrote about Obamacare. He says, you know, the case is the last exit on the highway to unlimited government. Because that's really what this is about. It's about whether or not you have a government that restrains or a constitution that restrains your government or is bound by the chains of the constitution, like Jefferson said, or whether you have unlimited government. And it's a big debate. It's never been just about health care. It's about really whether or not government is restrained. You know, Madison said that even the taxing authority, the taxing authority you could tax for general welfare, but he said if general welfare meant nothing, why would we have listed the 19 enumerated powers? He truly felt that the taxing authority was limited by the enumerated powers. But when you look at that U.S. versus Butler case, they strike down a tax as unconstitutional, but in their reasoning, they then say, oh, but the taxing authority is not limited by enumerated power, so it's not a great case. And unfortunately, they've gone with the reasoning for the last 70 years. So when conservatives say, well, at least we narrowed the Commerce Clause, we got a little victory, I think it doesn't mean much, because now the taxing authority has been broadened and widened such that I think they'll justify anything and everything from here on out through the taxing authority. Now, some would say, I don't care much about the Constitution. That's all a bunch of niceties in history. But I just, you know, the majority voted for Obamacare. I know nobody here would say that. But some people might say that. And so what would the argument be just from a practical point of view? I think you can sum it up in one sentence. We have about 50 to 60 million people on Medicare. It's 35 to $40 trillion short. So you're going to add 45 million new people who don't have insurance. You're going to put them on a government insurance program, and it's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to add to the debt, and everything will be fine. It's like, I've got some swampland, I'll sell you if you believe that. There's just, there's just no way you can intellectually grasp that we can't insure 50 million people, and it hadn't worked, and we've been... You know, we have a tax, and we've been working on this for decades, and we can't. Medicare is not working. It's, not, it's underfunded because too many old people and not enough young people. But the thing is, now you're going to say you're going to fund 45 million new, and it's going to work? So it's just a practical argument that it's not going to work. Government's a trillion dollars in the hole, and we're going to add a new government program. You know, I tell people it's, it's not that government is inherently stupid, although it's a debatable question. <laughs> is that they don't get the right signals. Government doesn't get the right signals. They don't conserve resources. They don't have efficient use of capital because they don't have to meet a payroll. They don't have to make a profit. And that is an amazing invisible hand that, that creates the efficiency of the marketplace. But 
government doesn't get those signals. And so government goes along its merry way and things get worse and worse. You know, Jefferson said that government's a necessary evil, and I think that's a great way to look at it because you have to give up some freedom to have some government. There may be some here who don't believe in any government, but if you believe in some government, you have to give up a little bit of freedom. But you should give up as little as you possibly can. Government also is poor at doing things, so government is best that governs least. So it's a necessary evil, and we ought to have as little of it as we can get, and it just doesn't work well. It's not very practical, so let's have very little. I'll give you a couple of examples, though, of kind of where we are. Some people say, well, we just need government to help us, to take care of us. So here's a recent example of government trying to help you with your health care. I'm a physician, and if you come in and you're on government health care, I write a little code in a box when you leave, and the government pays for your health care. Now, does the government care whether you got good health care from me? No, they care whether I got the number in the box. Because for six months, my number, my computer, was somehow not lined up with the form, and the codes were going on the line, and they wouldn't pay me because the number wasn't in the box. But we have 18,000 numbers, 18,000 codes that we put down to diagnose your illnesses and to describe you when you come in. But recently, the government said that's not enough. So they've changed it from 18,000 codes to 140,000 codes. And I'm going to give you an example, a couple of examples of the government is trying to take care of you, and this is going to make you feel better about your government, and it's going to improve your health. So the first new code we have is for bizarre personal appearance. <laughs> so if you come in looking like uh, Einstein, this is what they'll code. Another new code we have is for low level. Oh nope, well, this code is for bur oh, This code is for low level of personal hygiene. <laughs> We also have a code. Go back to the skis. Injuries sustained from burning water skis. I've seen a lot of unusual injuries, but I've never seen this one. But there will be a new code because your government cares about your health. We also have 312 new codes for injuries from animals, including 72 codes for injuries from birds, including nine specific codes for injuries from macaws. We also have, and this is an important distinction, and you can understand how things could go awry if you didn't have two codes for turtles. One for being bitten from a turtle and one for being struck by a turtle. <laughs> and I saw someone in the back has had three or four glasses of wine already. I won't say who it is. But if you're walking home from here and you should walk into a lamppost, there's a code for that. And if you don't learn your lesson tonight, you drink again tomorrow night, and you walk into it a second time, there's another code for subsequent <laughs> encounter, walking into a lamppost. Now, government doesn't do many things well, and occasionally we try to reform government. So one of the things they did back in the 90s, which most people liked, Republican, Democrat, maybe even Libertarians, although they probably wouldn't have approved with the program, but they reformed welfare by adding a work requirement. And everybody said, well, gosh, for goodness sake, if we're going to give money, that at least work. But recently, the president felt like that was just too onerous. And so some of the states have liberalized what work is. So in my, actually, I have to give credit to my interns because they starred in some of these uh, photos. So now these are some of the new descriptions of work. Bed rest, personal care activities, brushing your teeth that qualifies work, massage, <laughs> Exercise can be classified as work. Journaling. Motivational reading. And notice that book. Notice that book. 
Uh, smoking cessation can qualify as work. Weight loss promotion. Here's parent-teacher association meetings. And here's my favorite one. Helping friends with household errands and tasks. So it's like, hey, man, I'm going to buy some beer and cigarettes. Can I get you something at the store? That's work. That is now work. So one of the problems we have is we don't have many people working, but we are very successful at enrolling people to become disabled. And so I've got a picture here, and I want, I want you to try to give me the answer. Uh, let's go to the next slide. This is the Social Security office. Does anybody know what's wrong with the picture? There's nobody over 65 in the, in the picture. This is the Social Security office. They're all there for disability. We are now disabling or enrolling more people to be disabled than we are enrolling for work. Over 70,000 people last month were enrolled as disabled, and we only employed 60,000. I think we have to employ over 100,000 just to break even, not to have the, the unemployment numbers go up. So we, we, we have a lot of problems before us. And, you know, some have said, you can turn it off. Some have said, well, how are we going to get out of this? You know, what, what can we do? What are, what are our chances, you know, of, of getting out of this? And uh, the permanency of government is a problem. How do you get rid of programs? Uh, you know, Reagan said the closest thing to immortality is a government program. Today's Milton Friedman's birthday. I think Milton Friedman said the, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. And it's sort of true. Reagan mentioned it had been very hard, but he could only think of one government job that had ever been gotten rid of. In 1803, the British civil servants hired a guy, civil service, they hired a guy to stand on the cliffs of Dover and ring a bell when Napoleon came. They got rid of his job in 1946. <laughs> so we have trouble getting rid of government once it's here. So it is a big obstacle. We tried to get rid of one penny out of the sugar support two weeks ago. We had an amendment, get rid of one penny. It would have cut $7 million. That may seem like a lot to me and you. $7 million would be a lot if I had it, but to the government, it's nothing. $7 million, if you want to balance the budget, you would have to cut $7 million 140,000 times to get to a trillion dollars. We couldn't do it once. And so that's kind of discouraging, kind of where we are. We can't cut $7 million. We lost half the Republicans on that. Just as a coincidence, some of them had sugar growers in their state. But I will tell you, I called uh, someone who's been a large donor of mine, lives in Florida, and he's a, he's a sugar, uh, sugar farmer. And I've never been more proud. I was kind of worried about the vote, and I didn't bring it up. But he brought it up, and he said, you know, I don't vote my self-interest with regard to government. I've been very fortunate, and I think I'd survive without these programs. And even though I know it's against my interests, I vote. I, I, I'm a supporter of yours, even though I know you're against the sugar subsidy. That makes me proud of our country and think that there's a chance. I had a... I had a university president in my town come up to me, and he sat down with me, and he had a list of all the earmarks the other senators had gotten for him in the past. And he said, I know you've come out against this, and it's my job to advocate for my university, and I can understand that. That's his job. But he said, you know what? I know we're in a bad way, and I'm an American first, and so I understand if you don't get anything for me. People are kind of at that point, so I think the public is ready to hear a straight message. When I go home and I tell them the Social Security age is going to have to go up, we're going to have to means test the benefits, we're going to have to do all of these things, 
I think people are ready to hear it. They know things are bad. Um, so I think you can get away with telling the truth and maybe being elected. We do have a lot to do. We have, you know, I think really a civilization greater than any. We've had, we've had more freedom than any other country probably has ever had. We've had more prosperity. We've also, as a consequence, had more humanitarian giving than any other country ever. There's still a lot of greatness left in the country, but I think we are sort of at a tipping point, and we have to make some decisions. It won't be easy. I think there's the long-term goals of the Cato Institute supporting education, supporting um, ideas, but then there's a the short term in politics. So don't give all your money to Cato. You can still some 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 good politicians, <laughs> but uh, you can give quite a bit to Cato. I'm sure Cato will still take money, right? All right, but. Um, we have to do something, and the real question is whether or not we're going to have to wait till we have a chaotic situation or whether we'll fix things before we get to that point. Some days I'm discouraged and say it'll, it'll be chaotic before we fix it. We'll destroy the currency, and people will be, you know, breaking windows to get their stuff. But uh, other days I think, well, maybe we'll wake up before. There definitely is a mood changing in Washington where people are aware of the debt, the debt crisis that looms in front of us but they're still not ready to make the decisions. Every Republican in the Senate is for a balanced budget, but half of them we lose on cutting $7 million. So we're still not quite there yet. But I would say there is hope. I still believe in the political process. I will hope you will still engage in the political process. We've elected a, a great libertarian conservative Republican from Kentucky. We've nominated him. He won a seven-way Republican race and should win in the fall. We've got another chance. There's one up in Detroit. His name's Kerry Bentavolio, and uh, we think he has a chance to win. Um, there's good candidates. Many of them have been inspired by my dad's race. Kurt Bills is running in Minnesota. He's a great candidate. In fact, two of the candidates are school teachers. And uh, so we have, we're getting people from all different walks of life, and I think we have a chance of, of still restoring and, and retaking our country. But I thank you for supporting Cato, and I thank you for coming out this evening, and thank you for your support.